Please remain standing and open your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 10 as we read the Word of God together. Daniel chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 10 and read through the rest of the chapter. The context is Daniel has received a vision from God and he has prayed, and what we will read is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And it reveals tremendous things for us to understand. Daniel 10.10 Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days, then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince. Pray with me. Our Father, based upon what we have just read and heard, we understand that we live in a world that is not merely physical, that this is not a world where the reality only includes that which we can see with our eyes, because there is a spiritual world, there is an invisible world that is just as real as the physical world. There are angels, there are demons, there are invisible forces. There is a cosmic battle that is taking place at this very moment that is unseen to the natural eye. And Father, these are things that we would not know had you not revealed them to us. And as we consider these realities, we take great confidence and great joy and great hope in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign over all other beings, over all other creatures. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ far exceeds all of the angels and all of the demons, including the devil himself. And as we once again consider the theme of spiritual warfare, we thank you that the strength of Christ is more than sufficient for us in this battle. And so even now, we renounce any self-sufficiency, any dependence upon ourselves, and we cling entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ has conquered the devil on the cross, 
that our ancient foe has been defeated, that he can do nothing outside of the sovereign permission of you, O Father. As we turn to your word in a few moments, I ask, O God, that you would give us insight into your truth, that you would give our minds the ability to be attentive, even more than normal, to your word and to how we are to engage in spiritual warfare. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that he is alive, that he has conquered all of the enemies of our soul. And because of him, we have forgiveness of sins, we have justification, and we have hope everlasting. May we continue to worship with full hearts, O God, for the glory of your great name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We'll take your Bibles once again and open to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study of the Christian spiritual warfare part 6, a call to arms. And I have to confess to you that I have been looking forward to this particular message for some time because I believe that it is going to be especially helpful to us. Follow along as I read the Word of God to you from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Heiko Oberman was considered by many to be one of the world's leading authorities on Martin Luther. And in 1989, he wrote his most famous book, which was a biography on Martin Luther, with a very interesting title, Luther... Man Between God and the Devil. Man Between God and the Devil. The reason that Heiko Obermann chose that title for his biography is because Luther had a very strong awareness of the devil as his constant adversary. In fact, Luther wrote of his frequent dealings with the devil. Let me give you one sample quote from Luther. When the devil comes during the night to plague me, I give him this answer, Devil, I must sleep now, for this is God's command, work during the day, sleep at night. If he does not stop to vex me, but faces me with my sins, I reply, Dear devil, I have heard the record, but I have committed far more sins which do not even stand in your record. Put them down too, says Luther. That's typical Luther style and fashion. As you can see from that quote, it was not uncommon for Luther to actually speak to the devil. And on one occasion, he actually threw something at the devil, if you can believe it. While he was in exile in Wartburg Castle, he was translating the Bible into German so as to give the word of God into the common people. And on one particular day, he felt that the devil was especially troubling him and his work, and so he grabbed an ink pot from which he was writing, and he literally threw it at the devil, and it smashed against the wall. In fact, you can go to that same castle, and the ink stain supposedly is still on the wall. Well, as much as I love and appreciate Martin Luther, he is somebody that is very special to me, it seems, in my opinion, that he went a bit too far in how he engaged with the devil and spiritual warfare. And so this prompts us to ask some very critical questions about spiritual warfare. What is the nature of our spiritual warfare with the devil and with his demons? 
How are we to engage in spiritual conflict? Are we to go on the offensive and attack the devil and attack the demons? Or is the nature of our spiritual warfare primarily defensive in nature? These are very important questions And we need to carefully answer them from the Bible because it is precisely at this point in the discussion of spiritual warfare where there is so much confusion. Well, now as we attempt to answer these questions, let me remind you that we are still in the first main part of our text in Ephesians 6, which we have titled, The Believer's Warfare, in verses 10 through 13. And under this main point, we have been considering two subpoints, beginning with letter A, the strength for our warfare, which we have said is the unrivaled, unsurpassing power of Christ that is appropriated by putting on the full armor of God. And we have also begun to see letter B, the nature of our warfare, and so far we have focused our attention on that one phrase, the schemes of the devil. And we have looked at three major strategies that the devil uses against us. He tempts us to sin, he intimidates us through persecution, and he attacks the Word of God. So clearly we have established the fact that the Christian life in this world is marked by warfare. From the moment of our conversion to Christ until we take our final breath, the Christian life involves a great spiritual conflict with the devil and his demons who employ repeated and varied schemes against us. Therefore, it is imperative for us as the people of God to develop a wartime mentality rather than a peacetime mentality because this is not peacetime, beloved. This is wartime. And now we are going to explore even further the nature of our warfare in terms of how we are to engage in it. And so again, is the nature of our warfare an offensive battle or is it a defensive battle? Well, let's approach it this way by asking three simple questions of our text in verses 10 through 13. What, how, and why? What? Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? By putting on the full armor of God. And now why? So that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, beloved, listen to me very carefully. Based upon this text... The nature of our spiritual warfare against the devil and against his demons is primarily defensive rather than offensive. And I cannot stress to you how critical that is to understand that. We are living in a time, especially within the Pentecostal and charismatic circles, which are huge, where many believe that the nature of our warfare is primarily an offensive battle rather than a defensive battle. We are living in a period of church history in which such things as deliverance ministries, binding the devil, rebuking the devil, going on the offensive against the devil and his demons are very common practices within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most famous, influential leaders within the charismatic movement is a man by the name of Peter Wagner. You may or may not be familiar with Peter Wagner. For 30 years, he served as professor of church growth at Fuller Seminary School of World Missions. 30 years is a long time. He's wielded a lot of influence and still does even today. He's widely known for his writings on spiritual warfare, including books such as Confronting the Powers and Engaging the Enemy. And according to Peter Wagner, there are three levels of spiritual warfare. Number one, there is the ground level, if you will, which involves casting out demons and breaking their hold. So this is what he says we are to do as believers. We are to literally cast out demons and we are to break the hold of demons. 
And then there's level two. This is the occult level, which involves confronting the occult and magic practices. And so we are to do that, according to Peter Wagner. And then level three, there is the strategic level, which involves engaging the devil and his demons on a territorial level. A territorial level. This strategic level is sometimes referred to as spiritual mapping. Spiritual mapping. And the idea is that we are to map out and identify demons who control certain geographical regions within the world. And once these territorial demons have been mapped out and identified, we are to go after them, so to speak. We are to engage them in spiritual warfare. And all of this is considered to be pre-evangelism according to some charismatic missionaries. In other words, this is what must be done first in order for the gospel to successfully advance in the world. So Peter Wagner and many others like him see a vital link between practicing this kind of spiritual warfare and missions. Also, according to Wagner, these methods of spiritual warfare were virtually unknown to the majority of Christians until the 1990s. I find that very interesting. Now, let me be blunt. These methods of spiritual warfare were virtually unknown to the majority of Christians before the 1990s because this is not what the Bible instructs us to do. This is not what the Bible instructs us to do. Let me be clear. Let me be plain. There is nothing in Ephesians 6, which I have said before is the most comprehensive treatment in the Bible on spiritual warfare. There is nothing in this text to suggest that we are to cast out demons, that we are to map out and identify territorial demons, that we are to bind the devil, that we are to rebuke the devil, that we are to take dominion over the devil, or that we are to go on an offensive campaign against the devil, as Peter Wagner and others like him teach. Alex Kanya, who has written an excellent book on demons, a biblically-based perspective, he says this, quote, Never in Scripture is the believer exhorted to seek out or attack the devil or his demons. Let me repeat that. Never in Scripture is the believer exhorted to seek out or attack the devil or his demons. He goes on, On the contrary, the devil seeks to attack the believer. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right. How does the Bible describe the devil in 1 Peter 5.8? The Bible describes the devil as a prowling, roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You don't go looking for the devil and his demons. They come looking for you. They come looking for you. So the point that I'm trying to make, beloved, is that the nature of our spiritual warfare is defensive. It is defensive. The language of the text in Ephesians 6 describes the devil as being the one on the attack. We are not the ones on the attack. He is the one on the attack. He is the one who employs schemes against us in verse 11. He is the one that is throwing flaming arrows against us in verse 16. Furthermore, as Paul describes the specific pieces of armor in verses 14 through 17... They are defensive pieces of armor. They are for our protection. The only possible exceptions would be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in verse 17, in prayer, in verses 18 through 20. But these can be used offensively as well as defensively. And we will look at those further when we get to that point in our study. And so we ask the question, it is so vital to ask this question, what then are we to do in spiritual warfare? How are we to engage our enemy? Verse 11 tells us, Put on the full armor of God, a command. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
And so what are we to do in our spiritual warfare? How are we to engage the enemy according to the text in verse 11? The devil is the one attacking us. We are not attacking him. And in his attacks against us, Paul says, we are to stand firm. We are to stand firm. This defines our objective in the war. To stand firm is a defensive concept. It is not an offensive concept. It is to hold on to your position, to be immovable, to resist. So again, this is not an offensive campaign that we are called to, but rather a defensive campaign. This is not a prescription for how we are to attack the devil, but rather how we are to withstand the attacks of the devil against us. You'll notice that Paul repeats this in verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The full armor of God will enable you to do two things, which is really the same thing, namely to resist the devil and to stand firm against the devil. And then Paul repeats it again in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore. And then he prescribes the certain pieces, the specific pieces of the armor of God. Of God. And so again, how are we to engage the devil in spiritual warfare? According to this text, we are to stand firm against the devil, and we are to resist the devil. And we are to do this in the unrivaled, unsurpassing strength of Christ, which is appropriated by putting on the full armor of God. Beloved, this is the nature of our warfare. This is the nature of our warfare. Now, Paul is not the only New Testament writer to describe our spiritual warfare in terms of defense. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, the same thing as in Ephesians 6, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't say bind him, rebuke him, attack him, fight him, go against him, go after him, that kind of thing. It is defensive. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are to resist the devil, again, a defensive concept, and we resist the devil, how? By submitting to God in James 4, 7. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, another passage dealing with spiritual warfare. Peter says, Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what do we do? Well, he says in the next phrase, But resist him firm in your faith. Again, beloved, the devil is the one seeking to devour us, and what you and I are to do is resist him. We are to resist him by being firm in the faith, that is, by living in accord with the truth of God revealed in the Bible. Well, now let's move on to verse 12 in Ephesians 6, where Paul writes, For our struggle. And here Paul is continuing to describe the nature of spiritual warfare, and he does so by using a very interesting word, struggle, which literally means to wrestle. If you have maybe a King James translation, I believe it translates this Greek word as wrestle. The picture that you need to have in your mind here is that of hand-to-hand combat. This is not wrestling like Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, that kind of thing where they're throwing chairs and that kind of stuff. This is wrestling like you see in the Olympics. It is hand-to-hand combat. It is fierce. And listen, it is not distant warfare. The idea is that this is very close, this is very personal, it is like a wrestling match. And Paul wants to make it clear who in fact we are wrestling with in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He begins by telling us who our opponent is not. Our opponent is not a physical opponent. Our opponent is not man, it is not a group of men. They are not human in nature. And this is quite a statement for Paul to make because everywhere that he went, he was opposed by men, viciously opposed by men. Let me give you some examples. Shortly after Paul was converted to Christ, 
the Jews plotted to kill him in Damascus. And he had to escape the city by being lowered down from the city wall in a basket at night. This is in Acts 10, following his conversion in Acts 9. In Paul's first missionary journey while in Pisidia, Antioch, the Jews instigated a riot against him and drove him out of the city. That's Acts 13. When Paul was in Lystra, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They won the crowds over. They stoned Paul, and they left him for dead. That's Acts 14. On his second missionary journey, while he was in the city of Philippi, he was arrested. He was struck with many blows. He was thrown into prison with his feet in stocks. That's Acts 16. When Paul went to Thessalonica in Acts 17, the Jews formed a mob... They set the city in an uproar, and he had to leave at night and go to the city of Berea. And when Paul went to the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 21, the Jews stirred up the people against him, and they began beating him to death. Their intent was to kill him right there and then. He was saved in the providence of God by Roman soldiers, and he eventually ends up in Roman house arrest in Rome for two years, Acts 28. Further... Paul's teaching and his character were viciously attacked by the false apostles in Corinth and by the Judaizers in the region of Galatia. And this is just some of the opposition that Paul experienced from men. And with that in mind, Paul says in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What an amazing thing for Paul to say. Obviously, he was not... Ignorant of the opposition of men, he was not inexperienced with this. He experienced it all too well. But yet he affirms that our struggle, our ultimate struggle, is not against apostate Jews, it's not against unbelieving Gentiles, and it's not against ungodly political leaders, whether they were the leaders of the ancient Roman Empire or they are the leaders of America today. Our struggle is not against the president. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against men. And so Paul is affirming the fact that beyond any and all human opposition that we might receive, our ultimate opponent is not human. It is not natural, but rather supernatural. And thus the nature of our warfare is not physical, but spiritual. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Beloved, what Paul says in verse 12 about the nature of our warfare, these are things that you and I would never know had God not been pleased to reveal them in the Word. Because these are things that are invisible to our physical eyes. Now, there are several things I want you to notice in verse 12. First of all, Paul uses the word against, notice it, four times. Against, 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 against. Why? To stress that Satan is against us. He is opposed to us. He is not for us. He is against us. Secondly, Paul uses four different descriptions of our spiritual opponents. He calls them the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And thirdly, each of these descriptions is plural. Rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces. And so the point, beloved, is that it's not just Satan alone who is our opponent and who is against us. It is Satan along with his entire host of demons, which very well may number into the millions. Fourthly, in each of these four descriptions, demons are described in terms of their power. They're not given personal names. They're described, rather, by their power. They are rulers, powers, world forces, and spiritual forces. And so demons, beloved, are beings created by God, yet fallen, that are extremely powerful. They rule. They exert great power, great dominion, great influence. They are world forces. And fifthly, what we observe in verse 12 is that they are extremely evil. 
The character of their rule in verse 12 is marked by spiritual darkness and by wickedness. So these are beings that are hostile to us. They are not neutral. They are hostile. They are opposed. They are against us. Now to concisely summarize all that I've just said, let me say this, a concise theology of demons, if you will. Number one, demons are extremely numerous. They are extremely powerful. They are extremely wicked. And they are opposed to you who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some believe that this fourfold description of demons in verse 12 indicates that there is some sort of hierarchy, some sort of rank among the demons. But it's difficult for us to be sure. This may simply be four descriptions of the same beings, not necessarily describing them in terms of their rank. But what we do know for sure is that altogether the demons under the leadership of Satan represent one massive spiritual opponent like a spiritual mafia, if you will. So with that in mind, what are we to do? Hide? Run away? Never come out of the house? Live in a cave? Become a monk? What does Paul say in verse 13? Therefore... After what he has said in verse 12, this is what he says next. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And beloved, there's so much hope there. Because with all that we said about the enormity, the power, the cruelty of demons in verse 12, we are able to resist them. We are able to stand firm against them. What Paul says in verse 13, as I said a moment ago, is basically a repetition of verse 11. But there is something new here. It's found in the phrase, in the evil day. And it's singular. You will note that it's singular. So what is the evil day that Paul is describing? Well, we understand, according to the Bible, that we live in an evil age, Galatians 1.4. And that every day in the evil age in which we live in this fallen world is marked by great evil... The devil and his demons exert their influence and our total depravity unleashes itself in every possible kind of expression of evil. But Paul is not talking about the evil age per se. He's talking about the evil day, singular. And I believe that what Paul has in mind are certain days in the life of the Christian in which demonic attacks against us are extraordinarily fierce. All days are evil. We live in an evil age, but there are some days in the life of the Christian in this world in which it is called the evil day because the attacks of the devil and his demons are unusually, extraordinarily forceful. Peter O'Brien who I believe is the finest commentator on Ephesians, says this, The singular evil day points to specific times of satanic attack that come with extraordinary force and when the temptation to yield is particularly strong. You have those days, don't you, when you find that the temptation to sin is more overwhelming than other days. When the evil that comes against you is more pronounced than at other times. And as Paul is describing, this is one of the schemes, this is part of the work of the devil and his demons in attacking us. Let me tell you some people in the Bible who had days like this. How about Job? There was one day in Job's life when he was attacked by the devil with extraordinary force and his life was turned upside down. There was a day like this in the life of Jesus in Matthew 4 when he's taken to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He is attacked by the devil with extraordinary force, with extraordinary temptation. There was a day like this in the life of Peter 
when he denied that he even knew the Lord, and this was a part of the attack of the devil to sift him like wheat, and this was also the experience of the apostles who in that same moment fled from the Lord because they were cowering in fear under the oppression of the devil, the attack of the devil. That was the evil day for those men. And so there are times in your Christian life when Satan will come against you with extraordinary power, extraordinary force, and therefore it is imperative, beloved, it is imperative that you are prepared to resist in the evil day when it comes, because it will come, and that you stand firm against the attacks of Satan and his host of demons by taking up the full armor of God to protect yourself, because it is a defensive battle. As we've said before, the battle is so fierce and the opponent is so formidable that you simply cannot fight in your own strength without the full armor of God. And now with our remaining time, I want to address three items that are relevant to our understanding and engagement of spiritual warfare. And I want to do this because these are some points of real confusion that we want to clarify with the Scripture. The first item is this, spiritual warfare and prayer. Spiritual warfare and prayer. Some, again within the common Pentecostal charismatic circles, say that we should avoid praying out loud because Satan can hear us when we pray, the demons can hear us when we pray. Therefore, what we should do is whisper our prayers or only pray silently. How do we respond to that? And we might think that's funny, but people literally believe that. And this is a part of their paradigm of spiritual warfare. So how do we respond to this? Well, it is true, first of all, that Satan might hear our prayers or that the demons might hear our prayers if they are near. But what must we remember We must remember the one to whom we are praying, that he is sovereign, as we have seen, over the devil and over the demons. And therefore, we can shout our prayers on top of the roof without fear. The Bible never tells us to pray silently, to whisper To avoid the devil hearing your prayers just never instructs us to do this. Well, similarly, some say that what we should do when we pray because of the devil and his demons is that we should pray in tongues. And that is because when we pray in tongues, the devil can't understand what we're saying. So how do we respond to that? That's a loaded one, isn't it? So how do we respond to that? Well, I would respond, first of all, and this is my understanding of the Scripture, that tongues is not a prayer language. Tongues is not a prayer language, as you often hear. It is the Holy Spirit-given ability to speak in a known language that is unknown to the speaker. For example, I don't know Chinese. I've thought about learning Chinese. I've heard it's really hard, so I didn't try. I don't know Chinese, but it would be like the Holy Spirit giving me the ability to speak in a known language, Chinese, that is unknown to me. That is what we find in the book of Acts. They are not speaking gibberish. They're not doing prayer languages. They are speaking in known languages that were unknown to the speaker. And so beyond that, again, I would say this. I would respond the same way as I did before, that we aren't to pray silently. We're not to be in fear of the devil. We're not to pray in a whisper. We're not to pray in tongues. God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over all demons, individually and collectively. And therefore, we don't have to worry about them hearing our prayers. Who cares what the devil hears, right? That needs to be our understanding of this. We're not afraid of the devil and his demons hearing our prayers. Well, number two, spiritual warfare and territorial demons. I've already mentioned that. And so I ask you, is there such a thing as territorial demons who rule over certain geographical parts of the world? Trick question, nobody's attempting to shake your head. The answer is yes. There are some who have my view, if you will, of spiritual warfare who deny the existence of territorial demons, but I believe that's untenable because the Bible does in fact teach the existence of territorial demons, and that is why earlier I read to you Daniel 10. 
Because in Daniel 10, we learn of things that are invisible to us. We learn of things that we would never know apart from divine revelation. We learn that there is the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And what is that? That is a demon. That is a demon who is called a prince. And apparently this demon rules over a certain region of the world, the Persian Empire. It also talks about the kings of Persia, plural, other demons involved in this rule over this geographical region. Also in Daniel 10, and even in chapter 12 and verse 1, we learn about Michael, one of the archangels or chief princes of God. And guess what territory he rules? Israel. He rules over the nation of Israel. And believe me, beloved, Israel needs an archangel because there is tremendous opposition against that tiny little nation. And then also in Daniel, we read about the prince of Greece. Persia was fading in its power. Greece was rising in its power. And so guess what? Not only was there a demon ruling over Persia, there's also demons involved in the kingdom of Greece. And beyond that, there would be demons involved in the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the United States of America. Beloved, the Bible is clear. There are demons who do in fact rule over certain regions of the world they have the power to influence men. They have the power to influence political leaders for evil. And so there is this cosmic battle that is going on in the world, in the invisible world between demons and between holy angels. It is going on all the time, and we know very little about it because the Bible gives us very little information. And again, this is something that we cannot see with our physical eyes. But does this justify the practice of spiritual mapping? Because there are territorial demons, does that mean that what we are to do in our spiritual warfare is seek to map out these demons, find out who they are and where they're reigning, where they're ruling, find their territory, and then engage them in warfare? Does the Bible tell us to do that ever? No. No. Not in Daniel 10, 11, 12, or any other chapter in the Bible. Sidney Page, who has written one of the foremost books on this subject entitled Powers of Evil, a biblical study of Satan and demons, says this, that the Bible attests to the existence and activity of territorial spirits does not constitute grounds for thinking that Christians can or should attempt to identify them and the areas they control. So there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that we're to identify what demon is ruling over Keithville. That's sort of a joke. Or whatever region you can think of in the world. And even if we were to identify them, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that we are to engage them. That is not a part of our spiritual warfare. It is a part of warfare with God and holy angels, but not the church of Jesus Christ. So let's consider a third important point here that's relevant to what we're talking about. Spiritual warfare and the work of salvation. The work of salvation. Is spiritual warfare pre-evangelism? Is spiritual warfare necessary? Is it necessary to engage the devil and his demons? Is it necessary to bind them before we preach the gospel or before the gospel can successfully advance in the world? No. No. So what are we to do? In this world filled with demons, with Satan ruling over them, strategically ruling in the world, how are we to do missions as Christians? Very simple. We preach the gospel. That's what we do. We preach the gospel. We do it clearly. We do it carefully. We do it passionately. We do it repeatedly. That's our part. And then God, with His almighty, sovereign power, 
saves whom he wills. It's that simple. We preach the gospel clearly, faithfully, courageously, and God in his almighty power saves whom he wills. The almighty power that God exerts when he saves any sinner, listen, is a power that conquers all of the powers of Satan, all of the powers of Satan's resistance. And for one final passage, let's turn very briefly to 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. And this is a favorite passage of mine. It is tremendous in what it says to us about the saving power of God. Second Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There are people in the world who just do not understand the gospel, right? That is the nature of the lost man. Before I was a Christian, before July of 1992, I did not understand the gospel. It was veiled to me. It did not make sense. It was not attractive to me. It was not beautiful to me. It was not transforming to me. It made no difference in my life whatsoever because I was perishing. And so start there in verse 3. Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So you have a lost man. The gospel is veiled to that man in verse 3. Verse 4, Satan who is the God of this world, again, who exerts tremendous spiritual power, who has the power to blind sinners to the gospel. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They cannot see the light of the gospel. There it is in all of its beauty and all of its radiance. And they're like blind people walking in a museum. They cannot appreciate the beauty of what is before them. And that's because of the devil's power, of his resistance. So what do we do in verse 5? Do we have to bind the devil, rebuke the devil, engage in spiritual warfare, map out territorial demons, and get rid of them? No. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what we do. We preach Christ, Him as Lord over all, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then what happens in verse 6? I love this. This is one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible on sovereign grace. For God, not Paul, not men, not missionaries, not evangelists, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Bless God. Bless God. Beloved, do you understand the level of resistance that was in your heart to the gospel before you were converted? There was your own natural depravity which refused God, which did not seek God, which wanted nothing to do with God. You were the natural enemy of God, running away from God at breakneck speed. And then in addition to that, you have the God of this world actively blinding your eyes, veiling the gospel, And the only hope in all of that is that the God who spoke the world into existence and created light out of darkness, that this God would shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Beloved, this should give you a fresh appreciation how God in sovereign grace overcame unspeakable resistance in your life to the gospel. And so again, getting back to the spiritual warfare and the work of salvation, we don't have to do spiritual warfare. Bind the devil, rebuke the devil. We preach the gospel. God blesses the gospel by the power of His Spirit, and He overcomes all of the resistance of our natural depravity, and He overcomes all of the resistance of the devil and makes us His own delivers us from our sin and from the clutches of the devil. This is the divine power of God. So what is the nature of our warfare as we conclude our time? 
Well, as we have seen, the devil and his demons are engaged in an offensive attack against us, and they use a variety of repeated strategies and schemes. And our responsibility is that we are to stand firm against them, we are to resist them, and we are to do so again in the unrivaled, unsurpassing power of Christ, which is found in the full armor of God. Paul has exhorted us twice now to put on the full armor of God. And next week, Lord willing, we will begin to look at the specific pieces of the armor of God that we are to put on in our spiritual combat. Our Father, we thank you that you, in your grace and in your love for us, that you overcame all of the resistance that was native to our hearts by our own sinfulness and depravity, and that you overcame the blindness that the God of this world was able to affect in us. And so that where the gospel was once veiled and where we were once perishing, that the gospel is now revealed to us and we are now a saved people. And all of this is because you, O oh God, have shown, have made the gospel light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, we thank you for what we have been able to learn from your word today. We understand that there is a lot of confusion here, and I pray and trust that these things have been clear, that we are not to go on an offensive campaign against the devil. That is not what you have called us to, but rather we are to stand firm against him. We are to resist him, and that we are to do so by putting on the full armor of God. Father, help us in this endeavor. Thank you that there is unlimited power and strength in Christ that is available to us. And again, thank you that the devil and his demons have already been conquered, and that by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we pray this in the victorious, powerful name of Christ. Amen.